Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. For the past nine months, the Canadian Armed Forces have struggled with a sexual misconduct scandal that has rocked the institution and demands a massive cultural shift. The question has been, who can lead that shift? And with a new defence minister in place, the Prime Minister has also named General Wayne Eyre as his chosen Chief of the Defence Staff. General Eyre joins me now. Welcome, General Eyre. We spoke to you before as the Acting Chief of the Defence Staff. You are now actually the Chief of the Defence Staff. The last time I saw you, you told me you didn't want this job, but here you are. Well, I'm not sure anybody would want to have this set of circumstances, uh, Mercedes, but uh, I am uh, honoured to have been selected for this position and I will do the best that I can for uh, members of the Canadian Armed Forces and the people of Canada because this is a, an incredibly important institution for our, uh, our nation. What makes you the right person to lead this change? Well, I don't necessarily believe that I am the, uh, the right person um, and not one single person is going to be able to make the change that's required because it's going to take a collective. Not one person has all the answers uh, for what we need to do. Uh, and we've got to seek those solutions from wherever they, they may come from. And for every day that I continue to wear this uniform, I'm going to strive to make this institution better. You say you may not be the right person. I, I know you from many years in command. You're a humble guy. Is that what you mean? Or, or what do you mean by you may not be the right person? Well, what, what, what I mean is I will be doing the best that uh, I possibly can to improve the Canadian Armed Forces each and every day so it continues to deliver uh, for the people of Canada. The... Uh, I don't have all the answers for what we're facing, and I am willing to and, and eager to seek those solutions from wherever they may be. And I do know I've spoken with a number of survivors of military sexual misconduct who are quite happy to see you in the job. Uh, they believe, obviously, there's, there have been mistakes made, as there always are, but they think that you seem to have good intentions to, to actually try to create change. And I want to talk to you about some of those, including how you select leaders, because one of the things was identified was there was toxic leadership at the top, and, and the military and the government themselves have talked about this, which suggests the process for choosing who leads people and sets the tone for the culture was problematic. How do you choose the right leaders going forward that can lead this change beyond just the chief's office? So we've got a couple of initiatives underway. Uh, we've started with the uh, general officer or flag officer selection this year in terms of adding more science to the process, psychometric testing, uh, 360 degree uh, feedback sessions where subordinates have a voice in, uh, in the selection, in the uh, determination if somebody's going to go forward, using it as a, a tool to identify uh, potential flags. Um, we are introducing inclusivity as a, uh, a key determinant. So how do we measure, how do we assess inclusivity at all levels as well? Because in my view, um, as we look at culture change, that's one of the key aspects we have to, to look at. We've got some excellent aspects of our culture. You know, the willingness to be part of something bigger, the willingness to put oneself in harm's way, the willingness to uh, serve selflessly. Uh, to leave your family be behind, to go overseas and, and do great things. But it's the exclusionary aspects of our culture that need to be fixed. So how do we incentivize it? How do we assess it? at the lowest levels is uh, a very important step going forward. There is a class action lawsuit settlement that is going forward. It closed just a few days ago for claims. There was almost 19,000 individuals who came forward, not total claims, but individuals making claims. Did that number surprise you, the scope? I look at it from a number of different perspectives. So firstly, the scope speaks to the, the depth of the issue that we have to face, um, going back historically, but uh, presently as well. The, uh, the large number of people going forward also speaks to their willingness to, uh, to do that, which should, uh, which should make us um, uh, happy that they're willing to do that. 
realizing, of course, that uh, the act of, of even coming forward can re-traumatize some. I think it's also important to notice, uh, to note that uh, the latest stats I've seen, 42% are men. Mm -hmm. and, and that speaks to this not being just a woman's issue. It's an issue for all of us to address. It's an issue of power dynamics as well that, uh, that speak to a, uh, an element that we have to fix. Yeah, and I have the same number, and it, it, a lot of people talk about this as a women's issue, but it really goes to that fact, 42% mm -hmm. of the claimants being male, um, certainly higher than I think a lot of folks expected or talked about, and that deeper institutional issue. One of the things that you've also talked about is that you're losing people over this. You, you're having especially leadership around the NCO rank uh, who've been in for 15, 20 years, lots of experience deciding to say, you know what, I'm just going to get out. I don't like how this institution looks. And it's actually affecting you potentially operationally. How do you convince those people to stay in and how serious are the losses that you're sustaining right now? So I'm always concerned about those mid-level ranks and, and their retention because we've invested experience, we've invested skills, we've invested uh, training in them. So yes, I, I am concerned because they are the heart of our organization. The ability to make the necessary changes uh, resides at, at that level. So we need targeted retention. We need to encourage those that we've invested in to, uh, to stay. And a lot of it is changing those aspects of our culture that are driving them out because they are the future. Admiral Art McDonald was the chief of the defense staff. He's who you had to take over from. There was the extraordinary situation where we actually had two chiefs of the defense staff and, and this letter that he wrote saying that essentially he was the rightful person and should be in charge. Um, the Prime Minister says he's lost confidence in Art McDonald. You are the chief of the defense staff. But uh, Admiral McDonald is actually still in the military and you do have the ability to take administrative action against him even though criminal charges were not laid. Is that something you're looking into? What has happened is between Admiral McDonald and the government. I've deliberately kept myself at arm's length uh, from that, uh, that process, and uh, he's indicated that uh, he's uh, releasing from the military, so uh, that, uh, that will unfold. So does that mean that you're not looking into any kind of administrative action in regards to the allegations of sexual misconduct? Uh, not at this point. Okay. I also want to talk to you about the work that the Canadian Armed Forces are doing in the flooding across Canada. Um, it's a lot. How are you doing in terms of the assets you have, in terms of the number of people uh, and capabilities to keep up with the demands that you are facing with these increasing natural disasters? Well, that's a concern of mine, Mercedes. We're seeing an increasing frequency and intensity of natural disasters because of climate change. It's, uh, it's increasing the draw upon the Canadian Armed Forces. But we also have to remember that when the, uh, the people of Canada are in need, um, that's, that becomes our number one operational priority. So right now, as you mentioned, we're deployed to British Columbia. Uh, we are taking our tasks uh, from the province. province at this point is happy with the number of resources we've put out there uh, with our uh, land task force and with our uh, air task force. We've got uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 people on the ground focused on this. If, uh, if the situation deteriorates, we've got more on standby to, uh, to bring in. You know, likewise, on the East Coast, as we speak, we've got air assets that are moving out there, uh, trying to get through the weather to, uh, to get to the people of Newfoundland to uh, help out as well. You know, as always, we have um, troops on standby in, in every region to deal with these domestic emergencies. But I am concerned with the increasing demand on our armed forces and what it's doing to our readiness. And as we look forward to the future and designing the Canadian Armed Forces of the future, we have to, have, we have to do that with an understanding of what will be the role and expectation of our armed forces going forward. 
And it, it seems like that role is changing with the pandemic as well. I, I have a question for you that I've gotten from some folks who are in uniform. They're unvaccinated and they don't want to be vaccinated. They're not clear on what the future holds for them. And some of them think they may be dishonorably discharged from the Canadian forces if they don't accept the COVID-19 vaccine. What's the case there? Well, we've been very clear in terms of the administrative action we're going to take. Um, and in, in terms of measures leading to release uh, from the Canadian Armed Forces. But I want to be very clear with you as well. It, I don't understand why somebody who signs up, puts the uniform on, um, where our when our operations are predicated on teamwork, why somebody would willingly put others at risk by not getting vaccinated, willingly put teammates at risk. So we're not able to employ these individuals. We're not able to employ them operationally. We're not able to, uh, uh, to move them around the country. So in, in my view, um, even if we are short of, of numbers, we need those that are employable. My last question for you is the one I always like to ask people in security positions. What's the threat to Canada that keeps you awake at night? There are many threats that keep me awake at night, uh, Mercedes. We're seeing a, uh, a deteriorating global security situation. We're, uh, geopolitically, it's probably more dangerous now than it has been since the end of the Cold War uh, with, with global reordering. It's more complex because it's multipolar as opposed to bipolar. Um, we're seeing increased activity in the, uh, the Arctic. Uh, the threat of climate change, of course, uh, we, we, we see unfold every day, not just in terms of natural disasters, but population migrations as well and what, uh, what conflict that may spur. Uh, technological acceleration, and we see potential adversaries investing in some very high-tech, very capable uh, um, capabilities. We see the continued uh, proliferation of violent extremist organizations and, and extremist ideology, not just overseas, but here in our own country as well. In, this own, in our own country, and in, indeed in all liberal democracies, we're seeing a polarization of societies. We're seeing traditional liberal democratic institutions under increasing threat. So you, you mix that all together, it is an it's a very dangerous world out there. And we are going to see the Canadian Armed Forces uh, called upon more and more. Canada's going to need us um, unlike ever before. That's why fixing our culture um, and underpinning the, the, our culture that will underpin our operational effectiveness going into this much more dangerous world is an imperative right now. You mentioned the geopolitical situation, so I have to ask you in particular about China and your concerns there. Well, we're seeing uh, China becoming increasingly aggressive, uh, trying to impose its worldview on, uh, on many of its neighbours, um, upend the rules-based international order. That's got to be a concern. Uh, that's got to be a concern for many. Um, so protecting that rules-based international order that has served the globe so well over the last seven decades has got to be a priority. General Ayer, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your time and congratulations on the new job. Well, thanks, Mercedes. Thanks for the opportunity to speak. I'm sure you don't need anyone to tell you the cost of living is going up. If you've gone to the grocery store or filled up your vehicle or made a mortgage or rent payment recently, you felt the pain of growing inflation. Canada's inflation rate jumped to an 18-year high last month at 4.7%. Here's how some of that breaks down in everyday basics. Meat prices have spiked with chicken and ground beef costing 7 and 8% more than they did at this time last year. There's less pain for some foods like apples, which have increased by almost 2%. But buying a home continues to get pricier too. The cost of housing has shot up by 18% in the last year alone. Joining me now 
is Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP. It's so nice to see you in person here on the set. Welcome back to the West Block. I know. It's been a long time. It's a, it's a great honor to be back in person. <laughs> well, and, you know, as we move out of the pandemic and we, we get to start to do interviews like this again, a lot of folks are still really struggling. And they're mm -hmm. struggling with the basics. And I know you were talking about this on Parliament Hill all last week. I mean, the price of gas through the roof, mm -hmm. trying to pay for housing or for rent, extraordinarily expensive. People are being priced out of the neighborhoods they live in. Uh, the basics, including food, going through the roof. What is the NDP leader will you be pushing for in Parliament in terms of practical solutions to help people with how expensive the basics of life now are? Well, first, just acknowledge it is really tough right now. For a lot of people, they're coming out of the pandemic and we're still in it. But there's a lot of uncertainty and there's been a lot of worry already. And now on top of that, the cost of living is just going up so high. Uh, one of the things that is the, the biggest burden, I think, is the, is the housing. So whether it's renting or owning, that seems to be the biggest driver of the cost of living going up. There's two things we need to do around when it comes to housing and the cost of living when it's about rent. We've got two pressures. There's speculation driving up the cost of housing. We can tackle that with tools at the federal level. And then we need to put more money into building more affordable homes and the federal government can play a stronger role on those two things. So what does that money on the more affordable homes look like? Are, are you trying to put in more density? Are you putting money directly into people's pockets? Are you creating government subsidy programs? What would the NDP plan be for that? A couple of different things. So one is we know there's a lot of municipalities that have projects that are ready to go but they can't access the funds. I've spoken with a lot of mayors who say, we've got projects, we've got land, but we need partnerships to have the funds so we can develop them. So that's one area. We know there's federal lands in different municipalities across the country that could be shifted or developed into affordable housing. Uh, there's, there's just, the CMHC used to be used more effectively in building cooperative housing and not-for-profit housing. So these are some long-term solutions. And then immediately we need to see pressures on foreign buyers, on property flipping, these are driving up the cost of housing to an unsustainable level. And so those are things that the federal government can use our tax code to limit so that we're not seeing such a skyrocketing cost for housing. Uh, there's also a, a lack of supply, which you were talking about, and that does take some time to fix, especially when you're still building with COVID restrictions. Uh, these are, are longer term solutions. And I think there's, just listening to our viewers, a sense of frustration sometimes from folks that they feel politicians are out of touch, that they don't go to the store themselves in a lot of cases and buy a loaf of bread or fill up their own car with gas. Do you know how much those things cost? If I were to ask you, you know, what's the price of gas? What's the price of a loaf of bread? Are politicians out of touch on this? No, these are things that, I, that I'm regularly, I cook uh, in the house, so it's probably, it would be harder if you asked uh, someone else in the family. But for me, I'm the one that does a lot of the grocery shopping and cooking. And so I see the, the cost of, of bread and the cost of uh, groceries going up. I know how tough it is. And um, what I'm seeing is also that the biggest pressures are really in housing. That seems to be the biggest crisis that we're up against outside of the pandemic is housing. And that's where people are telling me really heartbreaking stories of not being able to find a home, not being able to rent a place. It's really impacting people from all walks of life. We've got people who've got good jobs, they can't find housing, people that have low income or no income. It's really an issue that impacts all Canadians. Well, gas and groceries, though, are also very expensive, mm -hmm. and they're things that Canadians are concerned about. I mean, in order to eat, and I know you're a big proponent of health, to eat healthy is getting really expensive for things like fresh produce and meats. And that's a product of international supply chains in some cases that are breaking down, COVID protocols in China. 
how can the government or the NDP supporting the government do something about these issues that seem to be affecting several countries, including one as powerful as the United States? When we look at the cost of living, we look at the things that we can control right away. We know that there's a lot of costs that are the subject to supply chain and, and are more difficult to have direct control over. But there's a lot of things that Canadians pay for that they shouldn't have to pay for. The cost of medication is something that a lot of Canadians have to struggle with. We should have a universal pharmacare program in place. The cost of childcare is something that we see some steps being taken, but we can really push to make life more affordable for families that want to make that choice. I'll be a dad pretty soon, and I know that's a, thank you, that's a big worry on a lot of people's minds. Uh, there are a lot of things where the federal government could be a more active player in providing support. So those costs, those daily costs for families are brought down to offset some of the other costs that are harder to deal with in terms of supply chain. Some economists say that they think the increased government spending may actually be contributing to inflation because there's more money out there now and pent up consumer demand because of the pandemic. The NDP is usually in favor of more government spending. What are your thoughts on the possibility that that spending could actually exacerbate things? Well, we, we looked at what was going on in the pandemic and we saw the K-shaped recovery happening. And a K-shaped recovery was when people who were struggling, people who were working class, for them, things got worse and worse and harder and harder. Those who had lots of money saw opportunities to make more money and we saw inequality increase. Without any investments uh, from government to support people, we would have saw that gap widen. And we already saw it widen even with the support. So I can accept a, a future where we see more and more inequality, meaning workers and families that are trying to get by have a harder and harder time while those at the very top continue to benefit and become richer but, and richer. But does that mean that you're concerned about more government spending potentially inflaming inflation or not? I look at uh, when people are in need of help, our focus should be on getting that financial support to people. That's the best way to come out of a difficult time as opposed to cutting the help that people need will only exacerbate the inequality. So I'm a, a firm believer in supports to people who need it most. But there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of examples of wealthy companies that took public money that didn't need to, that abused the system. And I would focus our attention on making sure they paid back their, their uh, inappropriate use of funds and we invested in the people who need it most. Are you concerned that some of the pandemic supports that are there and are ongoing might be contributing to the labor shortage? Not at all. Uh, the, right now, the pandemic supports have been cut off, but they were $1,200 a month uh, at the last phase. $1,200 a month is far less than minimum wage even. If uh, that amount of money is precluding someone from working, then we don't have a support problem. We've got a basic wage problem. Then people aren't earning a decent living. We've heard some reports of, of some restaurants and some other business owners saying one of the solutions is if you give people good pay and good hours, you'll get good workers. There's a lot of concern as well about the Canada-U.S. relationship around Buy America, the auto pact. Uh, people saw Trump go out and thought, oh, we've got President Biden now. We're going to have a friendly president, uh, friendlier perhaps to Canada, but also protectionist in a way that could harm Canadian interests. What do you think should be done to ensure that Canadian automakers are not harmed by American protectionist policies? How do you move forward on this? We need an exemption for Canadian-made products. It's really clear our supply chains are so interlinked that when something is made in Canada, it's something that's been produced with a lot of American input and our goods flow back and forth. So what we need is an exemption for Canadian products. It's clear that our economies are so interlinked that supporting or allowing for Canadian products to be within the Buy America would still encourage Canadian and American jobs and there should be an exemption.
last question. We heard the throne speech on Tuesday. I thought you might be a little bit more enthusiastic about it, given your past support for the Liberal government. Is the NDP going to vote in favor of it or not? Well, in the past, we've both voted for a throne speech in, in 2019 and against or against in 2019 and for in 2020. So uh, we've said to the Liberals, and we say this openly, that they shouldn't take our support for granted on any bill or any motion. We want to make sure that it's going to help Canadians, and we want to see an openness to work with us to make this parliament work in the interests of Canadians. So, so far, this throne speech doesn't sound like one that's one that's focused on the needs of people so or the far, urgencies I mean, we, of people. We saw the whole throne speech, so is that a yes or a no? Well, what we've seen is uh, an indication from the Liberals that they don't have a desire so far to work with us. Uh, they've indicated that in that throne speech, um, major things that we need, a housing crisis, there's not the urgency required to deal with it, on health care, no pharmacare or dental care. Some of the key things that we want to see happen are not in that. And so that's not a throne speech that indicates to us so far at this point that they want to work so together. So unless, unless you get certain requirements like pharmacare, it's a no? Well, unless we see a willingness to solve some of the problems that people are going through, uh, we'll look at that and then reconsider. But so far, this doesn't look like a desire to, to really work with us. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, thank you for joining us today, sir. Thank you. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block.